This is Van Color. Welcome back to This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and our featured guest today was the founding British Columbia director of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, an adjunct professor at my alma mater, Simon Fraser University, from which he and I obtained the same graduate degree, although I think he made better use of it than I did. The team lead and director of strategy of the Climate Emergency Unit, a five-year project of the David Suzuki Institute, his book, A Good War, Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency makes the case that we need a wartime approach to climate change. He is Seth Klein. Seth. Nice to be with you. How Mom. are you? I'm good. It's good long, to see you. Long time fan of the show. Thank good to you. Be with you. I, I appreciate that. I'm going to start off with a hot take. Yes. I think this year, 2021, British Columbians realized that climate change is kind of a big deal. Yeah. I mean, the, the 2021 has been the year of our reckoning with mm -hmm. the climate emergency and where I think for many British Columbians, it, it moved from being a threat somewhere else sometime in the future to here mm -hmm. to now. It's been a very unsettling year between uh, the heat dome event, the most deadly weather event in Canadian history, mm. uh, the fires, and now the atmospheric rivers to, to add to our climate lexicon. Yeah. Uh, I never was familiar with that term until recently and, and, and this incredible impact. So there are whole communities in our province from Lytton to Merritt to Abbotsford to, to Princeton that have been completely devastated this year. Right. And so one thing that you point out in your book is that in July 2019, our Canadian federal government, led by climate change activist, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, announced a climate emergency. And then the very next day, they announced the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which would expand production of fossil fuels from Alberta. Is part of the problem that we kind of see this rhetoric and we see, you know, people like the Prime Minister marching with Greta Thunberg and we go, oh, they got it. They're on it. They're taking it seriously. But then when you actually scratch the surface, you realize, like, they're not doing that mm -hmm. much work. Yeah. The messaging has been very confusing. Um, <laughs> I mean, if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that emergency communications needs to be clear and coherent and consistent. Um, and when a government says that something like climate is an emergency, but doesn't act like it's an emergency because mm -hmm. emergencies need to look and sound and feel like emergencies and how we respond or worse when they send contradictory messages by reapproving and approving new fossil fuel infrastructure whether it's the trans mountain pipeline expansion federally or lng provincially right they're effectively communicating to the public that it's not an emergency and so the public is less confused like is this an emergency or is it not an emergency um that dynamic is is something i call in the book the new climate denialism mm. and, and what i mean by the new climate denialism is uh, uh, these leaders they accept 
the science of human-induced climate change, mm -hmm. uh, not like the old-school climate denialists. Sure. Um, but they are still in denial about what that reality means mm -hmm. for the public policy choices uh, now before us. And it sounds like that's almost more insidious in a way. Uh, in some ways, it is. It's certainly, you know, people often say to me, what do we do about these climate deniers, you know, the old school deniers? And <laughs> frankly, I don't think they're our problem. Yeah. You know, the, what the polling says is the out and out climate deniers, you know, who reject the science, they're a diminishing rump of public opinion. Mm -hmm. They're about 7%. As you say, far more insidious is having political leaders and industry leaders who claim to get it uh, and yet don't. Right. Um, and... The public opinion on all of this, because you asked, like, what do people make of it? Um, increasingly, I think the public doesn't buy it. Mm -hmm. I think w when you poll Canadians, what they tell you is they are increasingly very anxious about the climate crisis. They believe our government should be doing more. So that's good. But, uh, but the polling is messy. Right. Um, and what it also tells us is that the basic level of climate literacy in our society is not great. Hmm. Uh, and the example I would give you is that only about half of Canadians correctly understand that the main contributor to global warming is the combusting of fossil fuels. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And wow. so when you're, when you're engaging them, if you say, should, are you worried? Yes. Should the government do more? Yes. What should they do? And they go right to recycling and plastics because that's what we've heard for 20 years. Yeah. But given that, that literacy problem, if you are the federal government or the provincial government, mm -hmm. you can kind of make a lot of mischief. You can sure. you can give the impression that you are taking leadership action um, when you are, in fact, still doubling down on fossil fuel mm -hmm. uh, production, and and that is a problem. When we look at the weather events that British Columbia experienced in the last year, again, like you said, heat dome, forest fires, the atmospheric river, is the worry that the focus will be too much on adaptation and not enough on mitigation, reducing the global, uh, sorry, the greenhouse gas mm -hmm, emissions. Mm -hmm. I have a bit of a worry about that. So first of all, to be clear what we mean by these terms with your, your listeners. So by, by climate adaptation, we mean uh, doing more to protect communities and people in the face of climate change. Mm -hmm. By mitigation, we mean what are we doing to rapidly reduce our greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah. Um, and you know, sometimes the metaphor I use, is, I, I liken it to water in a bathtub, right? <laughs> Think of annual emissions as the water coming out of the tap. Okay. But that's not actually what causes global warming and climate change. What causes climate change is the accumulation of all of that water in the bathtub mm. ever since the Industrial Revolution. Um, that's what's serving to f blanket the planet and, and heat us up and cause all this weather havoc. Um, we have, you know, the urgent task for our generation is to turn off that tap in the next few years. That's mitigation. Mm -hmm. There are certainly some who, in the wake of these events, jump right into adaptation. And ironically, having, you know, this is the awkward time we're in. We, we mobilize to put fires out yeah. and not to prevent them. And it's penny-wise pound foolish mm. because look at the floods. We will now spend in repairing the damage much more than anyone was calling on them to spend right. to, to lower emissions. Yeah. Um, uh, it's going to cost billions more. And the more we wait, the more costly it gets. You get some, particularly conservatives, I notice, are having you know, denied climate for years, stalled on action, jump right into now we need to, now we need to adapt. 
right? Yeah. <laughs> the problem is every fraction of a degree matters. Yeah. We're at about one degree of global warming now. 1.5 is worse. Two is worse again. Mm -hmm. Three becomes catastrophic. Right. Um, if we don't turn that tap off in the next few years, we can't give those who come after us a fighting chance to deal with the impacts of what's accumulated in the bathtub there, mm -hmm. to try to drain it if they can. But our duty, I think, is to give them that fighting chance, and that's mitigation. What would you say to someone that goes, Seth, I'm on board, I get it, but what I can't wrap my head around is, even if British Columbia or even Canada does all the right things, this is a global problem and we're only a fraction mm -hmm. of that problem. So, you know, why don't we just focus on adaptation and, you know, blaming others? Yeah, yeah. That point comes up a lot, I find, when I'm giving talks and interviews. Um, it's a frustrating argument, I find. It is, of course, true that this is a global issue. Mm -hmm. And you win wars like this struggle with allies. Everybody, everybody every country needs to do their bit. But there are many reasons why Canada has to, has to clean up its act. So while it's true that countries uh, with larger populations, like the United States and China and India and Europe, you know, the, it, those areas all have more greenhouse gas emissions than we do. Right. But our Canadian per capita GHG emissions are among the highest in the world. Right, um, yeah. <laughs> and that doesn't count uh, our role as extractors and exporters of fossil fuels. Mm. We are the fourth and sixth largest producers of gas and oil in the world. Right. Convenient for us, when we ship it overseas or to some other country, and it gets burned there, it counts towards their emissions. <laughs> but that doesn't get us off the hook of you know, our moral uh, responsibility here as peddlers of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But the, the other point, you know, as you alluded to in the introduction, my, my book is structured around lessons from World War II and, and Canada's role in the war mm -hmm. and, and our role in the climate fight. That logic that says, oh, but we're just a small country. Well, by that logic, we would have sat out World War II. In fact, one of the things I love about the World War II story is that we didn't wait on the Americans. Mm -hmm. We went two years earlier. And for most of those two years, we were the only country in the Western Hemisphere engaged in that fight. Hmm. We were an even smaller country then, about a third what we are today. And at the end of it, nobody questioned the value and importance of Canada's contributions. I think that's the spirit we need to bring to this fight. Yeah. We are now in the podcast exclusive part of my chat with Seth Klein. Seth, thanks for sticking around. I appreciate yeah. this. Happy. A bit of an aside, and you brought up LNG in the just previously. I keep hearing this idea that since burning coal is a primary source of energy for many parts of the world, and that's like the worst thing you could do, liquefied natural gas, LNG from BC, would actually be a huge help globally in providing a new energy source to all these places and thus fighting climate change with, quote unquote, the cleanest fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not smart, but I listen to that and, I'm, and I go, yeah, maybe. The, Does that the, work? The advocates for LNG desperately want that to be true. <laughs> um, uh, and you know, you could have made an argument thirty years ago, even twenty years ago, yeah, that natural gas and LNG were part of a, a, a bridge fuel uh, to where we need to go. Um, the problem is the bridge is to now. We've arrived. We're oh. at the eleventh hour. And now we need to leapfrog off of fossil fuels. That's why 
uh, the International Agent Energy Agency, which is no left-wing think tank, right? The, they are the the global think tank created by the oil industry in the 1970s and upon whose reports most fossil fuel projects justify their existence. Mm -hmm. This year, the IEA said, if we are going to keep global temperature rise within a safe level, it means no new fossil fuel infrastructure as of now. Yeah. And they name LNG and natural gas and, as part of that. Hmm. The other problem is, with the argument as you laid it out there, is first of all, we're going to send this to Asia, probably, and we we hope it's going to displace coal, but we don't actually know. All right? It's going to be whoever buys it is going to use it. Either. If it if it goes to Japan, for example, it may displace nuclear, mm. um, which has no GHGs. Right. Um, the other piece of it is when you burn natural gas compared to burning coal when you're generating electricity, the coal has higher GHGs. But when you look at the whole life cycle of these things, it actually becomes fairly equivalent. That's what the research is saying. Oh, is that right? Because okay. LNG in British Columbia is coming from gas that is 90% fracked gas from mm -hmm. the northeast of the province, which is plagued with methane emissions, methane being a very toxic greenhouse gas. Yeah. When, you, when you capture that whole life cycle, the, the, the greenhouse gas emissions are, are about a wash. Um, so we've we've arrived at a point that we can't handle uh, uh, LNG in a safe world. And if even if just phase one of LNG Canada uh, happens, uh, that plant will become the largest point source of carbon emissions in our province. Yeah, and we will not be able to make the math work on our climate hmm. plants. Going back to something we we touched on earlier in terms of this disconnect between we, you know we can call it the greenwashing that we see from certain political classes to the reality on the ground, is it frustrating that a lot of people look at things like LNG development or even the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and they're kind of falling? For, and I don't blame people, but they're kind of falling for the argument that listen to fight the catastrophic climate change, we need to make the money from the catastrophic climate change. We're all, you know, <laughs> we're all in some level of denial and our yeah. governments are in denial and, and uh, we're all making these little bargains with the laws of nature. Yeah. Um, and certainly the most uh, immediate example of that would be the federal government saying, you know, let us have this pipeline and we'll use the money uh, to, to tackle climate. Again, Maybe you could have made an argument like that 20, 30 years ago. Uh, not anymore. Yeah. I mean, the, the, we are now paying the price for having ragged the puck for 20 to 25 years. And now we just have to move much faster. Sure. You outline impediments to climate change encompassing three main domains, the political, the economic, and the cultural. Can you just briefly explain what you mean by each of those? Yeah, well, there's many barriers to taking the necessary wartime scale action that I think uh, we need to take. So there are political barriers in the form of the new climate denialism that, it, that we talked about, mm -hmm. practiced by, by political leaders. But even structural things, I think our electoral system holds us back in a way. Mm. The very nature of Canadian confederation. You know, we are one of the most decentralized federations in the in the world, mm -hmm. and natural resource extraction comes under provincial jurisdiction. So right. it just complicates. It, none of this makes it impossible. By the way, I want to be clear. Yeah, it just makes it harder to do what needs to be done. Um, 
the economic uh, barriers are people's fears about jobs and economic security, which sure. are real, and we need to make a, a compelling uh, case for just, for, for the, with a hopeful just transition plan. Um, it also relates to that confederation piece, right? So while Canada as a whole is not highly economically reliant on fossil fuels, pockets of the country are. Yeah. And so that complicates it. And then there's just the power and influence of the fossil fuel companies themselves mm. um, and their economic uh, strength, which means that we have political leaders who, when they announce their new climate plans, federally, provincially, they want to have reps from the fossil fuel industries on the stage with them <laughs> talking about how these are good plans that they can get behind. Mm -hmm. The argument I'm making in the book is, at this late hour, any climate plan with which those fossil fuel companies can find comfort probably isn't a climate plan worth having. Yeah. Uh, and then there are cultural factors. The Part of that power of the fossil fuel industry is in is in advertising mm -hmm. and how it affects our cultural norms, right? We talked earlier about the confusing messaging. Well, let me add to that list. The ubiquitous advertising still from fossil fuel vehicles and gas stations. So if you're the if you're a member of the public and your your government's saying to you climate's an emergency, but they're still allowing all of this advertising, <laughs> that's confusing. Sure. Yeah. The cultural element, I guess, interests me the most because as you sort of said as well like people are coming on board with believing that climate change is an immediate problem it needs to be addressed immediately with structural issues and we're seeing more and more in terms of public polling the people are on board so so what needs to change in the culture i mean you've you've identified advertising but is there a paradigm shift in terms it's of paradigm too thank think? you for naming that it's also in some ways, what's hauled us back is the um, resistance of these zombie neoliberal ideas it's themselves. Mm. Like, when I talk about what does climate emergency action actually look like? How, how do you know when a government is actually in emergency mode, like they were in the war? Like they COVID? actually were in COVID. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But yeah. like they aren't on climate. Right. To me, there's four markers of when a government's actually in emergency mode. It spends what it takes to win did that in the war. It did it in the pandemic. The federal mm -hmm. government certainly did, not on climate. It creates new economic institutions to get the job done. In the Second World War, Canada created 28 crown corporations to, to expedite the military production, to completely retool the Canadian economy. Mm -hmm. In the pandemic, you know, the, we, we pivoted and created these audacious new programs like the CERB and the wage subsidy within sure. weeks. Nothing like that on climate. So two, create new institutions to get the job done. Three, move from voluntary and incentive-based policies to mandatory measures as needed. And fourth, tell the truth. Mm -hmm. Tell the truth about the severity of the crisis and what we have to do to confront it. On climate, we're not doing any of those things. Why? Part of that is, is the straitjacket of these neoliberal ideas and assumptions. Why aren't governments spending what they have to? Mm -hmm. Why aren't they creating new public enterprises to get the job done? Why aren't they just using the regulatory power of the state to require that certain things happen? Yeah. They're stuck in these neoliberal ideas that are embedded in our culture. And it's not just right-wing governments that are stuck by those. Across the political spectrum, they're stuck. Yeah. I feel like 
there is a populist backlash when we start to talk about solutions to climate change, how the implementation of certain policy will affect the working class or rural communities. And to be honest, I might be guilty of that as well, because I feel like so much of, again, the cultural conversation sometimes revolves around electric cars and telling communities that are traditionally dependent on natural resource extraction, oh, just just go to ecotourism. And it's like, well, how many of those communities can, can all you know, do that? Mm-hmm. Obviously, one of your key planks in your book, uh, Good War, is not to leave anyone behind. So how do we start to mobilize the support of people who genuinely feel threatened that what you're talking about is going to negatively affect their lives. This is a really important point. And thank you for noting that, you know, a thread throughout the whole book is that we need to tackle inequality and economic insecurity and leave no one behind, as you say. Um, I think that's vital. I think this will fail if we don't do this. It'll fail both because it's it's fodder for these right-wing populist backlashes. Mm -hmm. Um, But more than that, it will fail because when you are asking people to engage in a grand societal undertaking like we are doing, you have to link that to people's economic security and, um, and, and make a pledge and a promise to mm-hmm. them that the society that will come out the other end of this is going to be more fair and just than the one we're leaving behind. That, too, has an echo, an historic echo in the World War II story that I yeah. tell in the book. The early propaganda in the war, you know, people often think, oh, Canada declared war and everyone's ready to rally. Not true. <laughs> yeah. You know, the threat was on the other side of two oceans. And, and the original appeal that told people, you know, go, go sign up and go get Hitler, you know, that worked to a point, but only to a point. Yeah. Um, what the government realized a couple of years in is that if they were actually going to mobilize the whole of society, if they were actually going to hit the recruitment numbers that they wanted to hit, they had to make that pledge and promise that the society that would come out the other end would look different than mm-hmm. the one they were leaving behind. And they brought in Canada's first major income transfer programs. Unemployment insurance comes in in the war. The family allowance comes in in the war. Um, increased taxes on the wealthy and corporations in the war. They brought in an excess profits tax in the war. So the, the kind of profiteering we've seen in this pandemic was illegal in the Second World War. Hmm. So all of these measures to communicate um, to the public that everyone was in. Yeah. Everyone, regardless of their wealth, everybody was going to have to do their bit. And I feel like that's what we need to do again today. And that has an echo in the present with the appeal of something like the Green New Deal, Mm -hmm. where you marry tackling climate with tackling inequality and, 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 a, and an ambitious jobs plan. And what the polling again shows is that when you suggest that to people, that we tackle the two together, the support for bold climate action doesn't go down. It goes through the roof. Right. Um, so, so I think we need to do that. And we have to make that compelling promise on jobs, and we can. Let me just give you a couple numbers. Sure. In, in, Today in Canada, there's somewhere around 300,000 Canadians who are employed in the fossil fuel sector. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And they need, they need to know that they have jobs and a future. But as big as that task is, consider this out of my wartime story. From a population of 11 million Canadians, so about a th- less than a third what we are today, over a million of those Canadians enlisted 
and over a million of those Canadians were directly employed in military production. Hmm. All of those people had to be recruited and trained up, and six years later, they all had to be reintegrated into a peacetime economy. Right. And we did that. We did that with these audacious income support programs and housing support programs, post-secondary programs that basically doubled the size of the post-secondary sector in, in Canada. Mm-hmm. If, we, if we could do that then, actually the task today isn't as hard. Yeah. Is another fear that coming out of this pandemic, I mean, clearly we can see what's possible and we can see how governments treat an emergency, but is a fear? is there a fear that people are just going to be exhausted mm. and there's going to be this yearning to return to quote unquote normalcy, yeah, yeah. despite, you know, obviously this being a, an emergency that, that needs attention, but just people saying, you know, we don't want to go back to these grandiose big ideas and changing our way of life. Like we've just done this for so many years. Mm-hmm. Let's just, uh, let's go. and plus, you know, let's blame these other people and let's just focus on adaptation. Yeah, as, I, yeah, as I said yeah. earlier, is that building on my question that I asked you earlier, is that fear there that, for sure. Exhaust people. I mean, the lessons out of the pandemic cut both ways. Mm-hmm. On balance, I think our pandemic experience actually helps us as we now confront the climate emergency. Okay. Because, you know, I wrote the whole book before the pandemic, shipped it off for final copy at it three days before the first <laughs> lockdown. And I thought we needed this historic reminder of right. how quickly we're capable of pivoting and this example of governments that threw the rule book out and, and, and hit all four markers I mentioned. And then all of a sudden, here we all are, experiencing in real time. And when you look at the kind of spending the federal government did in the pandemic, uh, what that lays bare is that after years of being told there's never enough money to tackle homelessness or poverty or climate, it turns out when a government actually recognizes an emergency, the money's always there. Right. Um, So that's all helpful. On the flip side, to your point, there's no question that people experience COVID fatigue. And I've had lots of people say to me, you know, Seth, what is it, you know, look how tired people became in less than a year of Mm -hmm. being in this emergency. And here you are telling people to spend a few years in emergency mode. Here's the difference. There's lots of similarities with the pandemic, but there's an important difference. The things we have been called upon to do in the pandemic are anathema to all of our social instincts. Mm. Stay home isolate. That's hard. Yeah. The good news, the things that we are called upon to do in the face of the climate emergency are precisely the opposite. Hmm. To go out and do something grand together. And I think we can do that for a few years. And touching back on sort of that cultural element, you know, I I do think and I don't know what it is, I'm not going to pretend like I'm a sociologist who can predict this, but I do think people do also think differently just on a personal level about their lives and what is what they value. What's important. You know, we've seen people change their jobs. We've seen people uh, get into relationships, get out of relationships, you know, make babies. Like people have really taken account and taken inventory of what's important to them. Yes. And I do wonder if, again, that makes sort of a, a fertile culture for the types of programs that you are. I think so. I think so. And we keep getting these examples that defy expectations to about how people will respond. You know, people worried during the bombing blitz in World War II of London, people thought, oh, people's mental health will kind of take a nosedive and so on. And then all the experts were wrong. Hmm. It turned out that when we 
when people were invited to do something in common cause, to, um, they actually, the, their mental health improved. Um, right. And similarly, um, you know, there were predictions that, that suicide rates were going to skyrocket in the pandemic. And in fact, the opposite happened <laughs> in the first year of the pandemic. Or even, the, you know, I mentioned before marker three of my markers of emergency are, are to move from voluntary to mandatory measures. Now, when a government moves to mandatory measures, you're always going to get your antisocial rump of dissenters. Right? Sure. It's never unanimous. <laughs> but in the main, what has been proven is that people are ready to do their bit, Right. That people, in fact, the public was ahead of the government saying, make it mandatory, make it mandatory. Mm -hmm. um, That's a really good point, actually. Because, yeah. Well, the reason why I think those, or even just after the floods, look at, look at the public reaction to the rationing of gas. There was no uproar. People were like, okay, we get it. Yeah. We all have to do our part. Um, the nice thing about mandatory measures is that whether it was rationing in the war or... or uh, various measures in response to the pandemic or what we now need to do on climate. In the main, most of us want to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. But it irks us because nobody wants to be a chump <laughs> if we do the right thing and our neighbor doesn't. Yes. That's the great thing about mandatory measures. You're liberated. You don't need to worry about your neighbor. Exactly. Your, neighbor, your neighbor's going to have no choice. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean... I almost wonder if there is, and I'm going a little off topic here, but I wonder if there's almost like a quasi-spiritual argument to this too, right? Like finding a certain meaning and a greater collective purpose. Yeah. Because we've, as you know, the war is a great example, we've certainly come together for grander purposes. And yeah. that's often been a, a critique of our society now is that, oh, kids don't have a great moral purpose yeah. anymore. You know, but I think... In the end, we all become the people that circumstances require us to be Yeah. when these tests come along. Um, that's what you saw in the wartime experience. And again, look at, look at the response of British Columbians to the floods mm. just in the last few weeks. Right? Yeah. Emergencies, we're all a bundle of contradictions, right? Yeah. All of virtues and vices. And, and sometimes emergencies bring out you know, these antisocial reactions, the hoarding or whatever. But again, in the main... It turns out most of us behave wonderfully, yeah, and uh, and we and we show caring and solidarity. But that is uh, what you mentioned. You're not a sociologist. What the sociologist will tell you is, in fact, that is the norm in emergencies. Mm -hmm. it is that most of us become the people we hope we will be? Yeah. Um, and so we have to know, give ourselves a little more credit, is what you're saying. Yeah. 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 And we'll change. We'll change. But. With all of these emergencies, I mean, here's another parallel across all of these emergencies. And I take some solace from this, having spent all this time thinking about the World War II emergency and the pandemic emergency and the climate emergency. All emergencies start with a period of denial. Mm, yeah. All emergencies start with a period. Like, and, but then, once they get recognized as emergencies, they transform us. They transform our social relations, our economy, uh, and our leadership. And sometimes the leadership ends up having to be replaced. And sometimes people surprise us and become the people we need them to be. Yeah. But there's always that awkward interregnum, that period of denial when we're not there yet. In the war, it was called the phony war years yeah, of the war. Yeah, that the war was declared, but... But not really. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is the phony war period of our climate fight. Okay. Uh, it won't last, 
Mm-hmm. The only question is, will it come to an end soon enough? Yeah, uh, to to do what we have to do. Because you've really made the case that time's up here. I mean, not just yeah. you. Clearly, you know, the science is is saying that yeah. time's up yeah. on this. We need to yeah. get moving. Give it to me straight. What is the consequence overall if we do not take this warlike effort and if we just continue on this incrementalist path? Well, first of all, if you look at British Columbians. British Columbia's emissions and Canada's emissions, going back the last 20 years, what you basically see is a flat line. Hmm. So our emissions are no longer going up. That's the good news. Even though our population's gone up, our emissions aren't going up. But neither are they going down. And other G7 countries, their emissions are going down. Yes. We have the worst record among the G7 countries. (laughs) Um, uh, Going back uh, to the 1990. Yeah. now, part of a big piece of that is, in fact, in most jurisdictions within Canada and most of our cities, our emissions are going down. And all of that has been undone by the expansion of fossil fuel extraction and processing, right? Interesting. Um, yeah. and, the con- and then it, it basically is a wash. We end up with these flat lines of emissions. But to put this in the language we've all come to know in the pandemic, we have failed to bend the curve as a right. province or as a country. And that means we are on a, we have, we have run out the clock with distracting debates, as you say, about incremental changes and where it matters most, which is actual GHG emissions, we have accomplished precious little. And if we continue on that path, we're fried. Uh, I said earlier, every fraction of a degree matters, but uh, if we cannot get on a steep downward trajectory then our kids and grandkids live in a hellscape. That's yeah. to put it in a sentence. You know, people, we talked earlier about these events in British Columbia, and often they get described as the new normal. They're not the new normal, Mo. They're just a taste of what's to come. Hmm. Um, and if people thought COVID was disruptive, we ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah. Because as disruptive as COVID was, at no time, at least in Canada, did it, did it disrupt our food and water systems the way climate will, and in fact, the way climate already is. Sure, yeah. Uh, right now in British Columbia. Also, you know, when you think about those early months of the pandemic, when we, we mostly became our best selves, right? We all banged pots and pans with our neighbors <laughs> at seven o'clock. Yeah. The thing about it, we checked in on each we other. We checked in on each other. Extreme heat. Um, messes with our capacity to cope just when we most need to be our best selves. Um, It's a bit uh, vicious that way. Um, If we cannot rapidly bend the curve, um, we are headed to a place that is uh, deadly and catastrophic for many, uh, deeply disruptive for everybody else, quite possibly ungovernable. Um, And this comes back to your point about mitigation versus adaptation. Mm -hmm. We cannot simply tackle adaptation because if we don't figure out how to turn that tap off in the next decade and get to do the mitigation piece of it, the adaptation task will just spiral out of control. It's too much. I have to make a disclosure here just for the listeners in case they're not aware. Your spouse, Christine Boyle, is a Vancouver City Councillor. Mm-hmm. And I just bring that up just so 
no one gets weird with my next question, but I'm genuinely curious when it comes to municipalities, you know, there's this argument that that is popular in some circles that, well, you know, municipalities can't really do anything. And if we are talking about a structural problem, it really does defer to the province and then largely the, the federal government. My question to you, obviously, you've done so much research on this. What can municipalities in their jurisdictions in Canada do to pick up the slack? Or are they beholden to the province and the federal government? Well, we, we cannot... Uh, there is no path to victory that doesn't involve the federal and provincial governments leading on this. Mm -hmm. Uh, That said, there's a lot that municipalities can do. Uh, So yes, my wife is Vancouver City Councillor Christine Boyle and a genuine climate champion Mm -hmm. and the person who... Alumni of this show twice. Alumni of this show twice. (laughs) Um, And uh, so so Chris was the person who uh, developed and introduced the climate emergency motion in Vancouver, Mm -hmm. the first in English Canada, which gave staff... 90 days, that first motion, to come up with a new plan that would align the city's targets with the, inter- the, the, the targets as laid out by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Mm-hmm. Vancouver, people often ask me when I lay out the four markers of emergency, well, is anybody doing it? Actually, Vancouver's doing it. Hmm. Um, they're, try- they're figuring out how to spend what it takes to win. They're creating new institutions to get the job done. They're moving from voluntary to mandatory. And they're telling the truth about where emissions are actually coming from and what Mm -hmm. we have to do about it. Let me come back to marker three. This is where you most know that Vancouver has a real climate emergency plan. What they have said, so over 50% of emissions in the city is buildings. It's the natural gas we're burning in buildings. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And what the Vancouver plan says is new buildings will not be able to use gas for space and water heating as of next year. That's emergency. The province in its plan has that target for 2030. That's not emergency. <laughs> Vancouver, it's as of January, so wow. a month from now. Um, and, you know, it took a couple of years to implement, and January is when it, when it kicks in. They're also structuring their regulations so that basically as of 2025, any time and even an older existing building has to replace its boiler or furnace, Mm -hmm. at that point they're going to have to fuel swap. They won't be able to replace it with gas. Right. Those two measures alone will drive down emissions within the city of Vancouver. Mm -hmm. But this, to my earlier point, even if Vancouver does all of this, if our senior levels of government continue to peddle the falsehood that we can be serious climate leaders even while expanding fossil fuel production, they will undo the good work of these municipalities. Yeah. Did did I read correctly in your book that even if we, as you said, re- replace the uh, natural gas and, and go to electric pumps, this actually could have helped in the... Um, Maybe this was in your talk. book, but it was no. Your, it's in, it's in some of my. my I mean, I, I, you know, I have but yeah, it would have per, observer. It would have helped in the heat yeah. dome. Is that correct? Yeah. So th- I mean, this this is something you and I were talking a bit about this earlier. So the the heat dome in June was the most deadly weather event in Canadian history. Yeah, which has uh, not been appreciated as no, that. Right? I don't think we've really fully, as a society, turned our minds to this. Uh, of the almost six hundred people who died. Who, um, they were mostly vulnerable, lower-income seniors. Uh, and, you know, you were asking earlier, mitigation versus adaptation. Sometimes 
the same policy as both. Mm. If we had already converted those people's homes, if we had unplugged them from gas and, in, and installed electric heat pumps, which not only provide heat in the winter, but also cool in the summer, as we urgently need to do to mitigate, to lower greenhouse gas emissions, mm -hmm. there's every reason to believe that all of those people would still be with us. Yeah. It turns out the same policy that we urgently need for mitigation is also one of the most powerful things we can do for adaptation. Right. Really quickly, you did just cite Vancouver, but does anyone else have it right, quote unquote, in practice? And, and I'm talking about these regional, provincial, or you know, federal levels. Does, is any country doing it right? Well, as you uh, correctly said a moment ago, there, there are other G7 countries that are doing a much, much better job than ours, particularly the UK and Germany. They, they are the G7 countries that have seen the most progress. Mm -hmm. um, and, and interestingly, those, that progress has been made under both left-wing and conservative governments. Mm. You know, so there's more of a societal uh, consensus there. But there's no other country that I can think of that truly hits the four markers of emergency, that is truly in emergency mode the way I'm describing, that, you know, we, this is that awkward period of the new climate denialism or the phony war, what have you. Um, I do think there are some jurisdictions like Vancouver that are starting to get there. Um, but certainly as a province, um, and, you know, your show is mostly a provincial audience, so l let me say, uh, the BC, Clean BC Climate Plan um, is not an emergency plan. Hmm. Uh, it doesn't hit any of the four markers. It spends a fraction of what we need to spend. It's not creating the new institutions we need to get the job done. It does set mandatory dates for vehicles and for buildings, but the dates are way too far out right. that they don't communicate emergency. And the government's not telling the truth. Um, because they're not telling the truth about, uh, A, what this means in terms of the future of fossil fuel extraction, but also in terms of that messaging to the public. What, I mean, let me ask you, when you hear the government talk about its climate plan, if and when you do, <laughs> does it look and sound and feel like an emergency to you? No. no. And, I, and I can say that because I can compare it to COVID. To to, exactly. Or let me give you another litmus test. If most of the measures, the dates, are backloaded to the end of the decade, it's not emergency. Right. That's when Greta talks about the blah, 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 yeah. that's what she's talking about. Yeah. That gap where the promises are made, but the accountability is at a date where most of our existing politicians have already exited the political stage. Yeah, deferred to someone else. <laughs> the other indicator you can use, and, and I'll come back to the Vancouver point here, you know you can measure the strength and effectiveness of a climate plan by the reaction of the fossil fuel companies. Mm. Do you see fossil fuel companies deeply anxious about the provincial plan? Because I don't. <laughs> no, not that I've seen. No. But I know Fortis BC <clears throat> is anxious about the Vancouver plan. Right. And that tells climate champs like Christine, okay, we got a good plan. Yeah. Seth, I've kept you over time, but uh, I really appreciate you being here. I feel like this was a long time coming. I know we've chatted in the past, but uh, thank you so much. Uh, before I let you go, though, your call to action, 
obviously, you know, get the book, A Good War, People but anything get the else? Book. Well, they should go to the website of the Climate Emergency Unit. It's just climateemergencyunit.ca and sign up for our newsletter. And there's some videos there. And, and with the newsletter, we're trying to organize uh, nationally and provincially and sectorally coalition tables behind the emergency ideas in the book. Um, so, so there's once people are in the loop on that, there's no end of ideas of what uh, of what people can do. Cool. That's what I'm going to do after Great. we're done here. <laughs> Seth, thanks so much. I appreciate you being thanks, here, bro. folks. That's our podcast. He is the author of A Good War: Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency. Find it. Pick it up. Yes, it will enrage you, but it will also instill hope. He is Seth Klein, and I am Omir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Yeah.